everyone, this is Fashion Knowledge and my name is Beta Vinchuk. I am a Berlin-based critical fashion practitioner and I work across education, research and strategy. I lecture on fashion, design and digital cultures and I run a consultancy and research laboratory called Unfolding Strategies. In each episode, together with my students and fellow researchers and practitioners, we discuss the fashion's most urgent issues and try to reimagine the socially just, sustainable and digital fashion futures. Okay, hi, welcome everybody. Today our guest is Imad Kadaya, and uh, thank you for joining us, Imad. Thank you. Uh, Imad is a Berlin-based designer, educator, and researcher specializing in identity representation and bilingual visual communication. We met for the first time, I think in 2019, as I was working on the curriculum for dual city MA program in social design, which was an outcome of a partnership between two schools in Berlin and Beirut. And as Imad is from Beirut and his work evolves around design and context, it became obvious that he should be a part of the program we've been creating. And he still is actually now. Uh, in his practice, he does both. So he does visual and theoretical work, which means that his practice is very complex and multifaceted. So on one hand, he can make I don't know, a poster, a campaign, but also a workshop or write a theoretical text. He is currently pursuing a PhD in ethnography at Humboldt University in Berlin. And he's also part of a consult Middle East, a consultancy that supports companies, agencies, and institutions in not spreading the orientalist stereotypes and misrepresentation. And fashion and orientalism have a very long past. And one of the most classic examples here would be the Parisian Roaring Twenties, where everything that came from somewhere between Russia and Japan was back then considered oriental and exotic, and later appropriated use and inspiration for fashion design. And I think it's important to mention that fashion is a very vital part of the culture. It feeds from it and it contributes and shapes it at the same time. And today we're in the middle of those debates, very important debates on diversity, cultural appropriation and decolonizing of fashion practices. And we're only learning how to respect, understand, not to misrepresent and not to tokenize people, their bodies, stories, values and places they come with. So as a system, fashion has this power to not only tell people what to do with their bodies, but also give them or take away their stories, meaning and context. So this is what we will discuss today as Imad is an expert in identity representation and self-orientalism in art design. And maybe before we start unpacking such terms as identity representation and self-orientalism, because they're quite dense and big, so I hope Imad will tell us you know, how you kind of use them and how you interpret them and how we can actually apply them to and learn from them in context of fashion. I would like to ask you if we should say Middle East or Swana, as in Southwest Asian, North African. What what do you think is better? Mm -hmm. uh, first, thank you, Beata. Uh, starting with a really big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the official answer is that Middle East is a colonial term. Uh, um, it it really um, begs the question: It is Middle and East to what exactly? And the answer geographically is Europe. So Middle East is not really a representation, a representation of any geographical area, but in relation to uh, European uh, imperialism. Um, therefore, um, in academic context, or even, I mean, let's make it pop as well, uh, to use Swana, because it is the um, uh, 
uh, official or geographic term for um, Southwest Asia and North Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what Swana means. And um, yeah, but I'm, I'm also one of the people who, who really like discussions to happen, um, as we say in Berlin, uh, um, discussions. I'm all in favor for using Middle East without necessarily having to write a thesis on it. So whatever rocks your boat, as long as we know what we're talking about. Good. I think I just I just also wanted to ask this question because I think it kind of starts and situates, I think, tone of this conversation in the right uh, way. Um, so yeah, how how come this is what you do? Can you tell us maybe in your own words, not in my lengthy introduction words, what is that you do? Um, what I do is an is is an intersection. So so I I do design work, graphic design work to be more specific, which is my. Uh, training, but within that training, when I went to do my master's, I wanted to to do a research on, back then the term was identity, because um, um, back then I didn't know what, what that term can unpack. And um, of course, starting from my own backyard and our, my own history coming from Lebanon, we have a complex uh, relation with identity. It can be very uh, dense in terms of we were colonized by the French, but we also had a a civil war that really was um, splitting the country in two. Um, we have 19 different religious sects in Lebanon. Um, so um, within Christianity and within Islam, we have a lot of different uh, small subgroups. And that makes uh, local identities in Lebanon. And I urge you to um, also use those terms in plural. So identities, histories, um, in general, memories, uh, because there is no one. And in Lebanon specifically, we come from that plurality. Again, if we see it in a bigger scope, the Arab-speaking region as well, Swana as well, um, we mostly talk about plurality. And I wanted to see how and why um, in design we reproduce kind of colonial visions, uh, whether in fashion or in graphic design or in film or in gaming. we have a lot of those. Uh, so I started the work on that back then, and um, I wanted to know, um, yeah, why we uh, keep doing that. And within that research, I, I built a whole, um, yeah, kind of a library on um, those representations, problematic representations and different discourses. And I still work on that, but from an ethnographic perspective, and that, that means in easy terms, uh, field work. So uh, I am doing field work in the context of the different Arab memories in Berlin, specifically in Zon Ali. So that's what I do. Okay, great. Thank you. And what do you, um, how do you see this plurality being applied, for example, to fashion? And could you give us some example of that? Um, usually it's the opposite. So plurality is the reality and fashion uh, does the opposite, which is usually packing uh, that plurality in in a sort of uh, um, mainstream representation because um, you know fashion is 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 a direct design discipline with a with a product yeah with a usable product Uh, and of course it has other purposes of course it can be an artistic expression but we're talking about mainstream fashion um, or mass production and it it has to do with the idea of making um, those instant quick links. So 
you want something Arab, I will make it gold. You want uh, something uh, uh, for the Arab world, we'll make it cover you from top to bottom. So fashion reacts to this idea of plurality in a very, um, let's call it erasure. Fashion erases plurality for the sake of uh, commercial appeal. I think we can discuss that as well. Yeah, I think it's curious because we very often, very often when I ask people to define what is, so, so for me, the answer to this question from social psychological perspective is because the world is complex and we need to simplify things, but also with simplifying complexity and cutting down, uh, there, is also, there is also things that result out of it. So this is where we are now because we've been cutting corners and also to perpetuating things without considering how others feel about that and how to respond to that because it was imposed on them. But when we think about um, fashion and um, what it is, very often people, and I do that exercise quite a lot with students or with people working in the fashion industry, that they have to define fashion and they very often say it's means of expressing yourself. So if it's a means of expressing yourself, but at the same time, it's a way to you know, reduce complexity. It's quite interesting because that means that we're you know, only we are only expressing ourselves through reduced means. I'm not in favor of this definition of uh, that fashion is about self-expression. I always personally see it more as a way of kind of belonging to a certain group, but mm. that's also a way of serve. So I think it's more conformist gesture rather than this creative outburst because you know we all are almost dressed the same as we go on the street if we go right now. So uh, yeah, so that's very interesting, this mix between um, expressiveness and expressing your identity combined with this reductionism. Mm -hmm. I, uh, in that sense, I, I invite everyone to really go a step beyond the self-expression into structures. So what, through that process, let's say it's self-expression, what kind of structures are we creating, sustaining, uh, reproducing? And also to understand the idea of simplification or order as an idea that is highly colonial. Um, mm -hmm. Before colonialism, we were multiple genders. We were not the, bin the binaries we know now. Um, we were always about complexity and always about difference. And I think we need to, to go back to that idea if we want to do any uh, self-expression or self-representation work, whether in fashion or not, um, that, that highlights um, difference as, as an anti-colonial or a decolonial uh, practice. It's important. I think nowadays we have to rethink simplification as a, as a mandate. So how can it be done? How can we, how could we, how can we even start um, doing this? Because for me, this also comes from this, in fashion comes from this origin of, uh, of, of a mood board as a very powerful tool where mm -hmm. everything can be collaged together, mushed up, and you create this patchwork of different visual elements purely for their aesthetics. And this is something that you, as you went to a, a art and design school, you were trained to do. I worked with students who were also trained to do that. So this is something that actually favors form over its meaning, its heritage, its origin, its complexity. This is what it does. And this is something that's very much embedded in fashion work, either if it's being a fashion student or a lecturer or a designer or a stylist or a strategist. So how, how do you think uh, this could be done? Yeah, it's, uh, the how is a really important question, but also let's start from, from the idea of there is no um, how-to kit to answer that or to do that. 
but there are steps one one or there are maybe suggestions one of the things could be in practical terms to always go beyond the image it's really important if we're talking about a mood board a dress an artifact it's always important to go the step beyond so um, in our memories i will give an example in that sense uh, the black and white scarf uh, that a lot of us, uh, a lot of us know as the Palestinian um, um and a lot of us wear. Um, it actually became a huge thing. I think in two thousand six or two thousand eight, when Kesquier uh, for Balenciaga put it on uh, Paris Fashion Week, and since then it became a huge hit, and we see it at Topshop, and we see it at Zara, and and so on. And then Chanel Cruz Collection did a, a version of it to represent Dubai. I mean, what is the relation? I don't know. There is no relation because it should represent Palestine. But um, that scarf itself, if we go beyond the pattern, we, we unveil a lot of political connotations. That scarf comes from a, from a, a fisherman tradition. That's why the pattern is like this. And then it became a symbol of Palestinian resistance against Israeli occupation. And this is a really crucial design object because once you remove the politics from that object, you're contributing um, to, to, to enforcing settler colonialism. So you're kind of removing history as well. This, mm -hmm. is how, this is how important something like that is. And maybe that's the extreme, but you can apply that same principle of go, going beyond the image. Do your homework, consult a local, um, work in, in groups, go um, do the historical part of the work and the field part of the work. And I think better answers will come up. You might end up doing a shirt at the end, and that's also okay, as long as the start is on... Um, solid research grounds. I think that's in, in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I totally, in that sense, you know, with the teaching and the work I do, I totally agree with you. Um, but it's interesting that you're bringing up the kefir uh, as an example. I had a student uh, presenting about that particular topic and about his tradition and heritage, uh, I think uh, uh, a week ago. It was a very interesting presentation, it was a, a master's student in MA Sustainability in fashion and creative industries. And she decided to uh, talk about it as we were discussing uh, the colonial fashions and uh, post-colonial inquiry in fashion in general. And she decided to talk about it uh, because she herself, she is from Middle East, from Swana region. And she saw that one Berlin brand, uh, Lala Berlin is using it. And she was very uh, kind of triggered by it. She thought, oh, this is a great example of a cultural appropriation. But then it came out in the comments that actually one of the people who's a, I don't know, I don't know if owner or the main designers from the brand is actually from Middle East and therefore kind of believes that they are as a brand celebrating it for doing it. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if this is, what do you think of it and how we could call it uh, another way is this could be an example of self-orientalism. Yes, this is, this is what I wanna say. I'm, I'm not talking about the, the brand itself because I, I don't know the story, but this is a classical example of self-orientalism in the sense of um, this kind of, in easier words, it's representing for the Western eye. So uh, you basically take how you were represented, uh, internalize it, believe it, and start producing the same. Uh, so this idea of celebrating an object without 
maybe bringing to the forefront its history or histories in plural as well um, can be problematic. So, so the notion here is not whether you're, you're Arab or not to, to say you can use the kafiyya or not. It is about using the kafiyya without its politics. This mm -hmm. is what matters. Or at least in my opinion, this is how you can distinguish um, appropriation from, I mean, it's also a simplistic way to say it, appropriation from appreciation. The key is to look for engagement. The engagement comes from politics, from political structures. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to look at that. Does it come without the politics? Is there no mention of occupation? Uh, are we not mentioning uh, where that come from? Uh, are we selling it against structures? How much? Who produced it? How much are we selling it for? Who is it designed for? It's really problematic to like um, appropriate, also at the level of class, appropriate an artifact coming from quote unquote the lower classes and then selling it to the Prince bag audiences is again problematic, even if you're Arab, even if you're political. So it's important to think about this whole thing as a structure uh, within an intersectional framework. Um, yeah, so it's very entangled, it's very complex, but there are ways. Mm, and is there something that you're working with in your PhD research with uh, Zolan Allah in Berlin? Um, not necessarily, because what I'm working on has more to do with um, internal Arab-Arab negotiations of memories, space, conflict, uh, gender as well. So it has less to do with designed objects or self-representation. Um, I went a bit, um, I diverged a bit, but again, I, I think that the, the idea of negotiating uh, memories comes, um, can tap into Orientalism or self-Orientalism because um, we see it a lot in, in migrant streets where there is an exaggeration um, of any identity markers, and, and we can talk about design here as well, there's an over-exaggeration of Arabness, what, whatever that means. Um, but that has other reasons that, that doesn't necessarily relate specifically to design, but more um, to, to dynamics of intergenerational memory, uh, of, of memory transferal. So you always see that generations of migrants become, um, construct their own memories of home and then they reproduce it in different ways. Um, and of course, this can be an Orientalist reproduction, though my initial research in design uh, has to do with designers at home reproducing own culture, not in migration. So it's a bit different. Mm, I was also, I was thinking about myself, how I do, for example, what is self-orientalism to me as a Polish woman living in Berlin, working in fashion and education. And I started thinking about hashtag Polish girl. I don't know if you are aware of this um, phenomenon. So hashtag Polish girl is a very popular hashtag on Instagram used probably at first predominantly by Polish women. But what is interesting in terms of, in terms of number is that this hashtag has now been used about 60 million times, whereas hashtag, I don't know, Russian girl spin 5.6 million or German girl in Germany is much, has much more people living in it than Poland 1.9 million times. So there's kind of specific phenomenon. And if you look at it, there is something gluing together those representation of women. And I also used to use it in an ironic way. Nevertheless, I did. So I was thinking, 
if actually prescribing to some kind of, you know, is it like some kind of way of expressing yourself and your style and also belonging that in the end, you know, what this, could, could this also be an example of that? What do you think? Um, it is definitely an example of like exaggerating um, a negative stereotype. Um, hasn't, it doesn't have to do with Orientalism, but it's the same principle of like taking a, an attribute that was um, um, used to exaggerate something negative and then reproducing it and doing more of it, but um, and that's very related as well to um, to female representations. I mean, in Orientalism, the discourse we're talking about um, Orientalism, post-Orientalism, and neo-Orientalism. Before we talk about self-Orientalism, and in a nutshell, um, what happened to representation of women is really important in, in line of what you're saying because. In Orientalism, the discourse, we were always seeing those visuals of um, Arab women or Oriental women in this case um, as unveiled. So before a certain period, they were naked, they were dancers, it was a bit like Jasmine of Aladdin. Um, so there was a lot of skin, a lot of belly dance, um, and a lot of seduction, yeah, hypersexualized. And then 9-11 happened, and after 9-11, we went into neo-Orientalism. Uh, in neo-Orientalism, the opposite happened. So we started hyperveiling. So then the woman, the Arab woman became this, uh, the, the burqa figure, black uh, from, um, from head to toe, which is one type of Arab women, but not necessarily, I mean, I don't have to say it, but it's not necessarily representative. Um, so I, I also would say that the representation of women as a stereotype also comes from a political tradition. Um, I, would, I would say also in post-Soviet uh, countries or in, in ex-communist countries, um, one can look at that politically as well. But it's mm. not my area of, of research, so yeah. Mm. And if we would come back to fashion, like were there kind of any cases, I don't know, from your perspective that you remember that actually very, like, I don't know, intrigued you? Uh, is there kind of any fashion related example that you could give us? Yeah, I can, I can maybe talk about two. Um, there's a book that is, um, that's called The Secret Life of Syrian Lingerie. And it's a book by um, Malou Halasa and Rana Salam. It's, a, it's more like a visual research about um, lingerie shops in Syria, but it's a research that kind of makes fun of it, makes fun of like the lingerie of the lower classes in, in other words. Um, and of, um, of course it might seem fun to many. It is also like very eccentric, very um, weird <laughs> um, uh, examples. Um, and I interviewed the writers about it and kind of it's a it's a fine line between uh, representing the fact that Arab women or Syrian women in this sense um, are sexual beings like all women. Um, but also this kind of hypothesis in of itself trying to prove that Arab women are sexual beings is also like stemming from a colonial uh, thought that they are not. Um, and the other example, I mean, those are invitations to look at examples critically, not necessarily that they only represent this. Another example um, 
could be a collection by Zaid Farouki. Um, it's called Revival in 2016. Zaid is a Jordanian, I think, designer based in Dubai. And he kind of flipped, you know, the, the Arab, uh, um, the, the Emirati garment that men wear, the white uh, garment with the headwear and the black ring on the head. Uh, Zaid um, flipped that and did a similar interpretation, uh, but for women. So it's a it's a play on on gender in that sense. Mm. Um, those are some examples that one can look at as both extremes, either progressive or problematic. So, and I think the answer lies on that spectrum in between, like mm. all. Yeah. And would you would you like to? Would you like to see more um, of such kind of, I don't know, approaches to fashion or in design in general? Or are you expecting to see more of them? I'm shifting now on this line more towards the ones that you consider progressive. I mean, some people, I mean, nowadays we're at an age of, of this, this Instagram um, um, era where, where things are quick. Like, for example, you see a lot of representation in, I don't know, there's a video clip of Katy Perry called Dark Horse. You see a lot of Egyptian uh, symbolism. Um, there's also, we're at an age where like, you have to be inclusive in representation. An ad we talked about privately was of uh, Klarna. It's called, um, it's an ad showing um, a veiled a woman of color. Um, fashionably veiled, let's say, because that veil would be problematic for a lot of communities, um, wearing green. And then it says, weil grün deine Farbe ist. And green traditionally is the color of Islam. So it's a, it's a bit like, did you mean it? Did you not mean it? Um, so I would like to see more representation for sure and more visibility, but I'm one of the people who think as visibility, um, who think of visibility as a double-edged sword because Visibility alone can be counterproductive. Um, visibility that is contextual, political, and researched, so stemming from research, can be very beneficial. So I want to see nuance. I want to see a lot of nuance. I want to see critical representations in fashion, in visual arts, in film, in music. Um, a lot of the in-betweens. Usually the answers are in the in-betweens. I don't want to see a total um, rejection of something on in favor of another, um, but I wanna see nuanced approaches to people being plural and having histories and yeah. Yeah, I would, I would also love to see that and I hope we will see more of that, but could you, if you were able to kind of uh, say, what do you mean by critical representation? What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? What is a critical representation? In easier words, it's a representation that critiques um, stereotypical ones, yeah? So, mm -hmm. for example, if we think of stereotypical representation of the Arab woman, you would say um, probably dark skin, uh, probably veiled, um, probably having five kids. Um, again, a lot, of, a lot of those stereotypes. And I'm not saying that the, the way to critique that is to show like uh, the totally opposite uh, in that sense. I refuse to talk about a binary, but in that sense, like a woman rejecting or like unveiling, or there's a lot of that in mainstream culture. There's a lot of like um, in drag culture, for example, uh, you talk a lot about um, 
um, unveiling like some like a drag queen in a burqa and then bam it's uh, she's in a swimsuit uh, so this is an ex exaggerated way but a critical representation would be one uh, that seeks plurality and that seeks um, something against the grain something against the mainstream and the grain when i when we say against the grain the grain is usually um, colonial male and heteronormative so by critical i mean the opposite of those as a first step and then we go into the in-betweens before our before before our conversation i shared with you a video it's an ad that's been hunting me on instagram it's a nike ad uh, it's a maternity ad where a lot of various very, very different in many ways women, but most of them very, very pregnant, and I'm talking like eight, nine months pregnant, are exercising, which could be for some people already quite conservative that you're weightlifting at the gym or, uh, you know, running when you are just literally about to pop. Uh, and some of them are Muslim women, they're wearing headscarves. What do you, what did you think? If this is, is this going, uh, if this is going against the grain, is this a critical representation to you? In some ways, yes, but we have to also think about it um, contextually. Um, I go back to this, to this idea of a structure. Uh, we have to think of, of it as what are you selling? Uh, who's your audience? Um, where are you producing? Um, yeah, who are you targeting again? So it's um, we have to to question the whole structure. It isn't really whether you represent people of color, um, pregnant women, um, uh, normalizing um, uh, any shape or form, uh, normalizing a lot of um, people or bodies who weren't traditionally represented in fashion or media. I would again um, call for questioning this performative uh, criticality in a way, because it could be performative, but it could have um, structural implications. Um, again, um, Nike isn't a charity, it's a brand. And we also have to be realistic at that level. Otherwise brands become even more per performative. So once we expect Nike to, I don't know, um, solve uh, world hunger, we are at fault in this case, because brands are created with a capitalist um, background. So we have to be realistic at that sense and um, do work that looks more into the structures behind the brand and sustainability, identity, representation, but also um, labor. That's, that's a notion that I really want to bring to the forefront because not a lot of people talk about it. Um, Understanding design or fashion or any discipline in that on that spectrum as a form of labor, um, mm -hmm. not a form of performative charity in this sense. So we have to look at the labor structures behind that campaign. So how did they pay? Who who they paid? Who's getting benefits from? Where is it produced? Blah blah blah. Yeah, I would even say, you know, who designs those garments and who creates those garments. And I'm very happy that you're talking about labor. One um, of my students also uh, introduced me to uh, to two fantastic images. One is an image of Jacquemus, of a French brand, of a team of Jacquemus, of a designer team, where, well, everybody 
is just super, super, super as pale as me and as white as possible. But then the whole kind of uh, collection and the, all the models are, you know, people of color. And this was so, uh, it was such a contrast and it really raises the question, you know, how you can use, how you can tokenize people, how you can tokenize where they're from, how they look, because you're not very interested in the end who they are. You just want to tokenize this kind of context that they have. And then this is this very performative act. So I think definitely to kind of, you know, leave with some takeaways from what we discuss is that research is very powerful and really important, looking at fix in the context and also thinking about fashion, not only in terms of the visual representation, but actually what is behind it and how labor is shaped and structured. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes, um, you know, that zoom out um, you see in movies where like you're taking a photo, but then you zoom out to the whole set. Mm -hmm. um, this is a takeaway, I think, from today's to see the, the set, the people on the set, the ones taking the photo, the ones paying, the ones signing more than the model at the end. Yeah, we need to look at behind the, behind the scenes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Imad, so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, thank you for inviting me, Dad.